Is it SZA? Is that what we're playing right now? <laughs> well, we're very woke then. Uh, all right. So welcome to Monday. Welcome to The Scramble. You may not be listening on Monday. I have a feeling the show is going to survive in certain ways. Uh, this episode, I mean, I don't know if the show is going to survive, but... <laughs> But I think we're okay. We've been through an interesting week here. We are in the second half of the show today airing our interview with Milo Yiannopoulos, which we've both been accused of suppressing and accused of not suppressing. Um, so I guess the second accusation is the more accurate one. Uh, but we're going to begin, and these uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do this is because these two things go together very nicely. Uh, Joshua Green has uh, a book that's uh, making a, a lot of waves, and, and as opposed to certain claims about, about other books, I'm pretty sure Joshua Green's book is a bestseller at this point. Uh, it's called Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. Uh, Joshua Green is um, uh, has written for many publications. Uh, he is senior national correspondent from Bloomberg Businessweek. But Joshua Green, I want, to, I want to begin by saying that you write for Bloomberg and you've written for a lot of high prestige publications in what Sarah Palin would call the lamestream media. Um but you seem to have gotten just an unprecedented amount of access, not only to Steve Bannon, but to other people around Donald Trump during the campaign. I mean, the amount of stuff that you seem to be writing about this book, either firsthand or very closely secondhand, is impressive. How did you get inside the tent, given that you do work for the lamestream media? Well, because, you know, I've spent the last three or four years as a reporter really focused on this emerging populist right. Uh, you know, I covered uh, intensely Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2007 and 2008. And when it became clear she was probably going to run again, I sort of felt as if I had uh, PTSD. I didn't want to go back and, and, and cover the same story because I felt like I'd kind of done that and I knew her. And I became interested in, you know, here, here in Washington, there's always been a lot of um, energy beneath the surface uh, of people who were espousing a different brand of, of, of conservatism, uh, populist-inflected, than you heard from the kind of Republican think tanks that produce most of the politicians and most of the Republican thinkers. And they tended to just be odder and more interesting people. Uh, but the real connection, I think, was to Bannon, who... Uh, had actually reached out to me in 2011, oddly enough. I'd never heard of him, uh, but I'd just come back from Alaska, and I did a big story about Sarah Palin and her governorship because uh, I thought that Palin was going to run for president in, in 2012, as most people did, as Palin wanted us to think. Uh, and I wrote a long article in The Atlantic, and I got a call from a publicist saying, hey, I represent this filmmaker. Uh, he really liked your article. He's doing a film on Palin. Would you like to come meet him? Uh, and I went and, and met the guy, and it was Steve Bannon, and he was very much the same figure that he is today, this kind of disheveled, rumpled, manic-looking guy who was espousing this brand of nationalist politics that didn't really get any airing in the Republican Party or in Washington at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm a magazine writer by trade, and one of the difficult things about being a political magazine writer is the homogeneity of both Democrats and Republicans, say the same things, the same talking points, they come from the same places, and here was this wild character uh, who, who was saying different things. And he had this fascinating background in the Navy and Goldman Sachs and Harvard and Hollywood. And believe it or not, and you wouldn't get this from his public portrayal nowadays, he's a really fun guy to be around. I mean, smart and profane and funny. 
And so I, I resolved at the time to write an article about him. It took me four years to find a good topic, but because I knew him and had known him before he was famous, I think he, he had a level of, of trust with me, a level of familiarity that not only made him inclined to talk to me, but also helped me open doors to a lot of powerful people in and around Trump's world at a time when other members of the lamestream uh, media didn't didn't have that kind of access. And so I thought I would try and put all all of this together and, and tell the story in a book. You know, when you say a different brand of conservatism, uh, I'm going to play a couple of clips for you. Uh, one of them is one that you mentioned in the book. This is uh, first one is from a rally uh, rather late uh, in the Donald Trump 2016 campaign. There is no global anthem, no global currency, no certificate of global citizenship. We pledge allegiance to one flag, and that flag is the American flag. And the second one is much more recent. It was from uh, Donald Trump's, I guess now it's his second to last trip abroad in a way. Uh, This is from his now famous Warsaw speech. The defense of the West ultimately rests not only on means, but also on the will of its people to prevail and be successful and get what you have to have. The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert and destroy it? So one of those is from before Election Day. One of them is after. But they're very similar, I think, in tone. Is this, is this the, the, the Bannon brand of conservatism? Is that what we're here hearing in those speeches? Both of those speeches are pure, undiluted Steve Bannon. That is exactly what he believes, that we're engaged in, in an apocalyptic clash of civilizations, that the survival uh, of, the, of the West is at stake, um, that, that we're engaged in, in this East versus West, Cross versus Crescent, battle, battle with uh, radical Islam, that this is, is, is a dire and menacing threat that is not just overseas in foreign wars, but right here in our country. Uh, Bannon, in particular, has a lot of very deep-seated and unusual uh, religious beliefs that have convinced him that we are literally in a dark age, that we are literally heading towards some kind of apocalypse if he can't manage to restore a more traditional Western civilization and, and awaken what he would consider to be the slumbering masses here in the West um, to this dire civilizational threat that he perceives. So, you know, in the book, you, you read about how on October 18th uh, of 2016, with Election Day drawing nigh, uh, Trump's internal number showed a 7.8 percent chance of winning. So in some ways, it looked to inside uh, a little bit the way it looked outside. But there were changes happening. We know a lot about those changes now, uh, retrospectively. But um, how much of those changes do you think uh, resulted from the consolidation of that particular part of his message. Uh, the the we play, we played that clip. The there's no global flag, there's no global currency, and there's no global this or, or that. How much of the win or, or the the surge had to do with that? Well, I, I think it was an important component of the win because what Trump is so good at 
And what Bannon is so good at is, is what in politics we call messaging. You know, you hear those speeches, and there cannot be any doubt about what Trump is trying to say, where he's trying to go, who he holds culpable and responsible. So much political discourse. You, know, you, you can hear it's like a tuning fork. You can hear, you know, when a phrase has been photoshopped by, you know, workshopped and, and devised by consultants, you know, coming together America, you know, the, the, the kind of rotating word cloud of, of professional political phrases. That is not at all what Donald Trump and Steve Bannon do and say and stand for. And I think that voters detected that and felt, rightly or wrongly, that there was something deeply authentic about Trump's message uh, and about his belief in American nationalism, about uh, you know, the need to kind of restore some mistier, earlier era uh, in our country's history that would be fundamentally better than the one we live in now. And I don't, I don't discount the power of that kind of messaging at all. I really do think that that was the key to winning the election and what made Trump so, so viscerally popular with a lot of people, including a lot of people who really weren't previously interested in electoral politics. You know, we know from your book, and, and I just intuitively believe anyway, that Steve Bannon is a true believer. But what about Donald Trump? I mean, he has a bit of a reputation of kind of the last guy to talk to him before he tweets or, or speaks, uh, is the most influential person. Also, people tend to rise or fall in his fortunes. I mean, your book chronicles viscerally and at times, at least from my point of view, hilariously moments where he would turn on somebody like Paul Manafort and just start screaming at him in a room full of other people, berating him with obscenities. You know, but, but that had less to do with ideology and more to do how the, with how the campaign was going or what had or hadn't appeared in the New York Times that day. So, you know, and even now, right? I mean, every week it's like Bannon's up, Bannon's down, Priebus is almost out, uh, Sessions is no longer in favor I mean, it, it, Donald Trump, I don't feel like, sails a particular course. But uh, would you make the argument that underlying all that zigging and zagging, there is kind of the nut of the Bannon argument? I would not make that argument. What I would say is I don't, I don't think that, that Trump himself really has a politics. I, you know, what I finally decided is that Trump, Trump has uh, impulses, and, and some of those impulses are populist. And... Uh, you know, I trace Trump's political history in the book as well as Bannon's. You can go back to 1988, 1992, when Trump first started running for president. What he would do back then, he would go on Larry King Live on CNN and give his spiel. And it was eerily similar to the one that he gives today. It was the idea that uh, America was being taken advantage of by wily foreign competitors. You know, it was Japan then, it's China now. So. It isn't quite as if Trump were an empty vessel and Bannon filled his head with these ideas. Trump was inclined in this direction. I think what Bannon did was give shape and context and historical uh, significance to what Trump was already inclined to want to believe. But I think that what really drives Trump is not political ideology. It's a kind of an instant gratification that he can get whether it's from a massive stadium rally or whether it's from tweeting something and then looking up and watching uh, heads explode on cable news based on what he just said, I, I think of Trump as being primarily an opportunist. 
And what he's most interested in doing is whatever he thinks will get him positive uh, affirmation right now in the moment. And during the campaign, I think that Trump could see when he was out at these stadium rallies that this Bannon's brand of nationalism was, was resonating with people. Trump is such a fascinating politician. He's, he's, he's quite obviously a terrible legislator. Uh, and he's not someone who does well in Washington. But I would travel out to these campaign rallies with Trump, and you can see him operating in real time. He would try out a line and see how it resonated. And if it worked, he would riff on it, almost like a musician. And I tell the story in the book, The Wall, and how that came to be. It was actually concocted by one of his young aides, a guy named Sam Nunberg, to try and keep Trump focused on the issue of immigration, because Trump famously has trouble focusing. And what Trump did was he tried it out uh, at a rally, and it drew this huge response. And so Trump began to iterate, and he began to add his own little innovations, and he'd say, I'm going to build a wall and nobody builds like Trump. I'm going to build a wall, and Mexico is going to pay for it. And I'm sure you and the listeners remember this from toward the end of the campaign. It almost, to me, it almost became like you'd see a Trump rally, and people would be longing for these lines. It's like going to a Skinnerd concert and yelling, Free Bird. Like, Mm -hmm. people would be in Trump's audience, you know, build the wall. They would chant and call for it. Um, to, To me, that is evidence of Trump's mastery of a certain kind of politics. And I think Bannon helped to amplify and abet that. Um, uh, and, and really, that's why their partnership worked so well. We're talking to Joshua Green. His book is Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. We're not going to, by any means, cover the, all the stuff that's in here. And it at times reads almost like, like kind of a political thriller. Um, uh, I want to ask you about something that's not in here. It's I want to ask you about, like, right now, uh, to your uh, very well-informed eyes, you know, the, I mean, even now, there's. It's. Uh, I said, well, Priebus is looks like he's on the way out. I mean, that seems almost literally true. Um, Sessions, uh, who's in your book and is one of the people early on identified, uh, I think, with, with the immigration uh, issue for uh, Trump. Uh, suddenly, there's no faith or trust in him, at least temporarily, according to the president. It almost looks as though he might be doing another reformation of his administration. Might be going on more of a war footing. Uh, maybe. I mean, there's. Even today, there's reports that Rex Tillerson is unhappy. There might be a Rexit. You could easily imagine uh, um, uh, Chris Christie as chief of staff and, and Rudy Giuliani as the new attorney general and, and, and maybe Trump bending a little bit more in the Bannon direction and simultaneously getting ready for a series of investigations and possible legal actions. Um, so I just gave you my catastrophic scenario that's out of my mind. What's in your mind? What do you see when you look at what's going on there right now? I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's too far off. Um, tr- you know, Trump, it's, it's so cliched to say this, but it's true. Trump thrives amid chaos, and he goes out of his way to create it. And on some either conscious or subconscious level, really does treat his life and his world like a reality show. He likes to see these people compete, his advisors, and scramble, you know, climb up each other's backs for influence and try and fight and he'll bring someone into favor, and then he'll sort of cast them out. And I go through some of the stories in the book with Chris Christie, who was the first uh, major political politician to endorse Trump. It was a shock when Christie suddenly came out of the stage in Dallas and endorsed Donald Trump. I mean, it was just 
a landmark moment in the campaign, and everybody thought that Christie would wind up billeted for some important job like attorney general, and he didn't wind up getting it because Trump felt smothered and lost interest in him and kind of pushed him out. Same thing has happened with Sean Spicer and a lot of these guys. Um, I think that Bannon has a kind of social intelligence and an understanding of how to, to, to maneuver around Trump that other advisors don't have. Um, and I think it's the key to his survival. And I didn't, I didn't tell this story in the book, but I'll, I'll say it now. One of the most interesting things Bannon <laughs> said to me during the campaign was, he said, you know, every day at about 11.30 or 12, I leave Trump Tower, and I just disappear. I just go away for like an hour or two hours because I watch Trump, and he's always surrounded by lackeys and yes-men and courtiers and people who want his attention. And as, for as much as Trump likes having people around, he resents them after a while, and he feels smothered. I just thought that was so interesting that Bannon knew to absent himself so that Trump would never get totally sick of him. Not a lot of people get that. And I think that after Bannon was punished by Trump in February, his profile just got too high, and Saturday Night Live was portraying him as President Bannon. Uh, so Trump punished him by, by kicking him off a few committees and, and casting him out into his inner circle. The fact that Bannon didn't quit, uh, didn't fight back, just kind of took his punishment, uh, served his penance, I, I, I think was another example of him understanding that I just need to back off for a little while, but eventually Trump is going to need me, and then I can come back in and continue to exert my influence. I think that's what happen what's happening right now, because suddenly Trump is consumed with this Russia scandal, and you can tell in his tweets, and you can tell in his interviews with the New York Times, and you can tell in his body language. Uh, and Bannon, who is so far not enmeshed in the scandal, is just about the only guy in the West Wing that Trump can lean on now who isn't involved in the scandal. And so he's managed to maneuver himself right back into this position at the right hand of power, uh, trying to defend Trump behind the scenes uh, and trying to help him fight back against his many enemies. We don't have a lot of time yet left, but I do want to at least sort of bridge to the next segment. There's a chilling paragraph in your book, Josh. You say, if you trace the line backward from Trump's election, it doesn't take long before you encounter online networks of motivated gamers and message board denizens, such as the ones who populate Trump-crazed boards like 4chan, 8chan, and Reddit. During the campaign, users of these message boards were eager purveyors of racist alt-right invectives, such as the anti-Semitic Pepe the Frog images that the Anti-Defamation League declared a hate symbol. Trace the line back a little further, and it leads to Breitbart News and Bannon, who's hiring of the anti-feminist internet troll Milo Yiannopoulos as Breitbart's tech editor, greatly exacerbated those forces. Just hear a little bit of that Milo person who will be the second part of our show today. This is what conservatives are so upset about. You can't express yourself on Facebook or Twitter without getting banned or, sen- or censured in some way. You don't see your opinion, your opinions reflected or your concerns reflected in the media. When you express yourself, you're called a hateful, bigot, sexist, racist, homophobe, whatever. You've been sort of systematically silenced by Hollywood, by the media, and by academia. And it's very clear. And I, don't think you can, I don't think you can make the argument that that's not true anymore. 20 years ago when conservatives said that, perhaps they were being ridiculous, but they're not anymore. And that's why people like me so much. And that's why people put Donald Trump in the White House. Okay. That's, by the way, I mean, that's my 
Milo about two weeks ago. He's a little bit more housebroken these days because uh, he lost so much uh, credibility because of being banned from Twitter and uh, and uh, because of his remarks about about uh, pedophilia uh, causing him all kinds of other personal and professional losses. But Josh Green, um, you know, a campaign is also about moving information around, finding the right ways to move the information and the right language to put the information in. And you make the argument, I think, a devil's bargain that accessing this new kind of trolly online community was a big part of it. How big a part? I, I think it was a real big part. This, this is just, just the, the, maybe the most bizarre part of the whole Bannon story. Uh, and and I'll, I'll go through it quickly. He, he, in, in the mid-2000s, he became the executive of a video game company in Hong Kong whose business was not building games, but it was, it was called gold farming, where he would hire these low-wage Chinese workers to play World of Warcraft and other video games, win prizes and special armor, and sell them to gamers in the real world. And uh, this, this is a real business that Bannerman was backed by Goldman Sachs, and, and for a year or two it made a lot of money. And then what happened was all of these gamers and millions of people play these games online together, um, mostly young men, uh, spent hours and weeks absorbed in these games. And what happened was these gamers didn't like the fact that, that other people were essentially cheating by buying their way ahead. And so they organized on message boards. Uh, and these were message boards that Bannon's own company owned, uh, where these gamers would congregate and go after the video game companies, essentially saying, you need to kill this practice of gold farming or we are going to revolt. And it worked. And it killed Bannon's business but it gave him an appreciation for these roiling uh, currents that kind of run beneath the surface of the Internet where there are millions and millions of these what I call kind of rootless white male gamers um, who, who can be a very powerful force when they decide to motivate themselves. And when Bannon moved to Breitbart News about five years ago, he conspired to bring them over from the world of gaming into the world of right-wing populist politics and, and Trump. And, and Joshua Green did that yeah, I'm, 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 by hiring Milo. Right, yeah. exactly. Hiring. So I'm going to stop you there just because we're out of time. Uh, the book is Devil's Bargain by Joshua Green. You're going to meet one of these roiling currents uh, from the, uh, what does Josh call them? The uh, tumbleweed of male id that is the alt-right and the internet. Uh, you'll get to meet one of those currents get to meet might be a qualified thing but anyway hope i hope you'll listen to this interview and not get too upset with us down as you'll see we'll sputter and we'll cough and we'll throw this is an interview with a man named milo yiannopoulos you may or may not have heard his name he really became one of the more I guess charismatic is a fair word, spokespeople for the alt-right from his perch uh, at Breitbart. You'll get a sense of what his rhetoric is like uh, coming up in, in this interview. But I should also tell you that this interview has kind of an unusual history. There was a mild national controversy last week over Milo's claims that we were not going to use this interview, having recorded it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, those were erroneous claims. Uh, we had all, always planned to use the interview. But before the interview even happened, even before we taped it, we discussed our own misgivings about giving airtime to a person who had been banned from Twitter for his role in a harassment campaign and who had, in fact, tumbled from his per perch at Breitbart for voicing approval of certain consenting sexual relationships between boys and adults. I mean, this guy is not necessarily our cup of tea. We weighed that against the suspicion that 
He wouldn't get on many or maybe even any other mainstream shows. And that there's a certain value in knowing something about the people that you hear about and talk about. Frankly, before we started getting ready for this interview, I'd never heard Milo Yiannopoulos' voice, even though he's been in the news a lot, because I just don't watch Bill Maher or any of the other places where I might, in fact, encounter him. So we thought maybe you'd be willing to encounter him, too, in this format. But as we got going, I even asked Milo about this, about how he thinks listeners to WNPR might feel uh, about uh, an appearance by a self-professed alt-right troll like him. You know, obviously, this is NPR. NPR has a certain kind of reputation. You have a certain kind of reputation. Um, they're, um, <laughs> they don't sound like they go together, do they? <laughs> no, I, I would say the Venn, the Venn diagram doesn't really overlap uh, all that much. And so you'd be surprised. Yeah, you'd be surprised. Tell I, me about that. I might that. be slumming it on public radio today, but there are plenty of NPR listeners who are just as upset with the things that I talk about in the book as, uh, as uh, the, the conventional Milo audience. So, no, I, th- I, think there's a, I think there's a little Venn diagram. Bigger than people realize. Right. It's bigger than the media realizes, um, as we saw in the last election. You know, they're very bad at predicting what America cares about. Right. So um, that's a great way of answering or beginning to answer what was going to be my next question. I mean, I, I am going to have listeners because people have in their minds uh, – um, an idea of who you are and what you are. I am going to have listeners who are going to say, why are you putting this guy on the radio? Why are you putting this guy uh, on WNPR? What's your answer to that? What is what is it about you that's important for people to hear, people maybe in, in a public radio audience to hear? Well, I think your typical audience is probably likely to sympathize, whether conservative at all, um, with a more establishment Republican vibe. I obviously don't represent that. I represent a much younger, more mischievous, trolly, if you like, uh, youth element of the conservative movement. What's important, because there are so many of us, it's important because we altered the trajectory of the last election. And I'm important because I'm the person that they look up to most um, after perhaps the president. And, you know, one thing I I do say in interviews regularly, particularly in in, uh, environments like this, is... Yes, I'm a provocateur. And yes, I say some outrageous and terrible and rude and mean things to people. Well, let me be clear. I don't want everybody to be like me. But it's important, I think, that there are some people like me. Because I think there's a consensus among conservatives and libertarians of of all bends, and even now among some liberals, some progressives, that the boundaries of acceptable speech in American public life have become too narrow. I think there's a, a, a finally an understanding, finally consensus that conservatives, for instance, have a really rough time on college campuses. And there's beginning to become an acceptance that conservatives don't really get a fair shake in the press either. And I think there's now incontrovertible evidence because of the last election that, cons- that conservatives are not understood by the media. Uh, the media is incapable of reporting accurately and, um, and thoroughly and fairly on, you know, a huge swathe of the country that it simply doesn't understand. And it wasn't able to predict, um, you know, how they would behave in the last election as a result. I represent the younger end of uh, American conservatism, which is, which is utterly sick of hand-wringing, school political correctness, of people telling us, you know, what jokes we're allowed to tell, you know, what's sexist, what's racist, what's homophobic. The implication being that somehow somebody in a, in a newsroom or in a, you know, on a desk or, or in a studio somewhere on the coasts knows what's in the hearts of millions of Americans and is able to sort of um, loftily condemn perfectly innocent things. I represent um, a young libertarian audience that, is, that has nothing to watch on TV. Imagine if you're, if you're young and you're slightly left-wing, you might watch, um, well, pretty much every channel, you know, <laughs> any one of the late-night shows. You, you, can't know, find anything in, you can't find anything in Game of Thrones to make you happy? 
Yes, of course, but, it, but, but for those 40 or, or maybe 50% of the population who feel as though they might lean rightwards, what current affairs shows are there for them out there? I mean, you've got Fox News, whose average age, the average age of the viewer is 70 plus. There's simply nothing for three generations below that. Um, if you are of a, of a conservative bent, and if you're of a very conservative bent, there's nothing anywhere. Now, but, with but the wouldn't, wouldn't, of Breitbart. wouldn't market forces just correct that? In other words, if there's this tremendous appetite in those generations that you're talking about for a certain mm-hmm. kind of political speech, I mean, there's a lot of channels in the spectrum right now. Why, why wouldn't there just be that? What, what's getting well, market, in the way of that? No, the market is correcting it, and um, it's correcting it in the form of me. And that's why, to answer your first question, it's important that the rest of America who thinks they don't like me understand what they're actually talking about. Most people who object to, to Milo, who, who don't like me, are people who only know me from headlines and have never actually come to one of my shows. They've never read a column by me. They've never visited my YouTube channel. They've never read an, a proper in-depth interview where I've granted somebody access rather than just a comment piece about what an awful bigot I am. They actually have no idea what I believe. They have no idea what I stand for. When I say things like, for instance, since I'm, I'm quite persuadable on the subject of reparations for slavery, um, I just wish that it would go, you know, to, to, to black schools. Their jaws drop because they had no idea that I, ha- you know, that I'm this sort of more co- more complex and iconoclastic figure than they were led to believe because they've been lied to by the journalists they trust. Is that the reason, so, or or have you done a lot of things that call attention to themselves and obscure? For example, that's a really interesting observation, yeah. and you're absolutely right. I had never, I would not have associated you with that idea that reparations might be a thing, but and I've they said might go it, to so many interviews. People never do their research. People never read. People have no idea. You know, it's you, all you have to do is watch five minutes of me on television or in one of my college talks, and there are hundreds of hours of me on YouTube to immediately identify that this is not the person the media is describing. I am not Richard Spencer. I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a white nationalist. I'm not a bigot, sexist, racist. I'm not any of those things. I am a funny, quirky, interesting, provocative uh, lecturer, author, and journalist. And it just takes five minutes of the most cursory research to realize that there's something more interesting happening here, which clearly you and your producers have done because you've invited me on, but most people simply don't. But do, and but the do slightest you think, bit of research... But don't you would, bear would, some would responsibility for that problem? I mean, you described yourself at the, at the outset as trolly. Trolly, to me anyway, means, you know, a, a, a person who is intentionally causing trouble in a way that's not meant to be productive or to further a conversation, but simply just to get people's dander up. And you've done a lot of that. I mean, aren't you responsible for some of the, quote, mis- quote-unquote, misconceptions about you? Well, as you'll know by now from reading my book, um, I like to describe myself as a sort of virtuous troll or a troll for Jesus. You know, again, that that is in itself another troll. Um, But, you know, I I think that there's a difference between trolling and simply outright meanness and unkindness and um, bad behavior with no purpose. I like to describe trolls, as they are on the Internet today, as the only people who are left telling the truth. Trolls, for me... Um, at least when done properly, done virtuously, done righteously, as I like to think I do it, are the people who can who can say the uncomfortable truths, you know, the unsayable things that we all know are true, but we can't say in public. And it's those Falstaffian figures, it's the jesters, it's the trolls, it's people like me and the people who read my book, you know, in, in their hundreds of thousands, I'm happy to say, um, who say things that, that, that the rest of America can't for fear of social censure or professional disaster. And yes, I mean, I would be whining about all of this if I thought of myself as a victim, but I don't. I say provocative and outrageous things to get precisely the reaction I do get in order to demonstrate that Amer- the American media is 
really in the business of virtue signaling and policing language and isn't really interested in the truth, isn't really interested in what's actually happening, just wants to spend all of its time deciding who's racist and deciding who's sexist. So I very often do dumb myself down in some of my public proclamations and in some of my interview answers because I want to see who bothers to dig deeper. I want to see who bothers to actually find out the truth. And the answer, I'm sorry to say, in many cases in, in the mainstream media, certainly in, in this country, is almost nobody. You know who does look in? My fans, the people who read me, the people who've bought my book, the people who come to my shows, they understand and appreciate there's something far more intelligent and complex and interesting going on uh, in my career. It's journalists whose primary job isn't to speak truth to power or explain how, what, you know, what's going on in the country, but rather simply to point at things and yell bigot. Uh, those people don't understand me because they have no interest in doing so. All they want is to call me n nasty names as a way of demonstrating their own virtue. Well, that, I think, is a, a devastating indictment and a completely true picture, I'm sorry to say, again, of, of, the, of the, the state of the American media. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Since the election, American journalists on all of the major broadcast networks and in, in all, all of the newspapers um, are, are doubling down on the strategy that didn't work for them the last time, doubling down on, on the stuff that put Donald Trump in the White House. Many of your listeners will be deeply uncomfortable with the current president, but they should be aware that the newspapers they listen to and the TV stations that they watch are in large part responsible for him being there. And second of all, you should be glad that you only got Trump. You should be very relieved that Donald Trump is the worst that happened to this country, because for 30 years, the left has been wrongly and hurtfully calling people racists, calling people sexists, calling people homophobes, calling people bigots, um, on the basis of almost no evidence. It has become the primary function and purpose and modus operandi of the American media uh, establishment is to simply point at things and say sexist, point at things and say racist. No, I, think I, well, I, I, I have do. to object to that. I mean, first of all, I work in the American media establishment. I don't spend my days doing that. It would be a very unusual thing for me to do that over the course of, you know, 50 weeks of work in a given year. I'd be astonished if I did that more than once or twice, if that at all. And I think that's true of an awful lot of journalists. I, I think it, it, that's a, a ridiculously blanket statement to say the primary purpose of the American media is to call people racist and sexist. Become. I think that look, look at what young people are reading, because I'm not talking to 65 and 75 year olds, um, although many of them like me, too. I'm talking to 20 year olds and 30 year olds. Do you read BuzzFeed? Do you read Vox? Do you read Mike? Did you read Gorka when it was still alive? Because um, I, th I think if you had, if you were reading the things that young people read, if you were reading Complex, these kind of outlets that publish via Snapchat, for instance, I think you'd have a different view. So it might be possible that I should temper what I just said with a, with a caveat that um, maybe that's not true for the things that the over 50s or the over 60s listen to. Maybe, you know, Fox and NPR don't do that. But look at the media outlets whose coverage is directed at millennials. And yes, that's exactly what they spend all day doing. That is precisely their primary purpose. It is to police other people's sex lives, to police other people's attitude, to police other people's language. These bitter, miserable, middle-aged bloggers who live in, in Los Angeles and New York, lecturing the rest of us on how we should live, telling us what's okay and what's not okay, coming up with these bizarre new definitions of racism that, 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 um, that say that 
um, white people are always racist all the time, even if they don't know it, even if they don't mean to be, even if they're not really, but we'll just say it. Uh, and black people can't be racist because of structural in a, you know, disadvantage, all this kind of nonsense dreamed up on college campuses, complete malarkey. But that is the primary business in which the media is engaged. For any anybody under 40 who reads anything directed at them, go online, look at what the... And look at, also consider this. It isn't just what you say when you're on the air. It's not just what you publish in the pages of the newspaper. The primary, I believe, the primary impression that the American public gets about journalists isn't from their printed work. It's from what they say on Twitter when they're being a little looser with their language because they think everybody agrees with them. They don't have to get it through an editor. They don't have to worry about so much about defamation. They don't, and they can simply just express what they really believe. You realize this, that you know, Milo this, Yiannopoulos complaining about other people being nasty, vindictive, mean, and vicious. But I'm not a hypocrite because I'm not. No, but I'm not a hypocrite. I say I do it, and I explain to you why I'm doing it. They think they're virtuous. I'm perfectly happy to admit that I'm, you know, down there with the pig getting dirty, um, and I'm. And, and I'll also even explain to you my reasoning for doing it. I'll tell you why I'm doing it. But, you know, it, it, the, the hypocrisy for me isn't me complaining about name calling. I'm just pointing out that you guys do it too. And well, they, they do it, let's say. They do it and they're hypocrites for doing it. And by the way, they're wrong about everything. Um, but I don't, you know, I'm not pretending to be a feminist, um, you know, champion of women's rights, a champion of racial justice. You know, I'm a free speech activist and a provocateur and a journalist and an author and an entertainer. And I'm drawing attention to what I see as hypocrisies out there in the world. I am not claiming to lead some kind of social justice movement. Quite the opposite. I want to destroy it because uh, I think it's gone off the rails. Well, I'm so, looking, yeah, I'm looking at Vox.com. So Vox is one of the sites you mentioned. I'm looking at them right now. I'm looking at the front page. I just don't see any of the stuff that you're talking about. I don't see them policing people's language, their sex lives, their racial attitudes. I see a lot of explanatory journalism for the most part. I mean, that well, seems to be what they're good at. See very, well, we see very different things because Vox gave up on its mission of neutral explanatory journalism a very, very long time ago. And anyone who is in the slightest bit invested in any of the subjects Vox writes about will tell you, and even left-wingers will admit it, that they have, they have uh, you know, from their original pretense of explaining the world neutrally and factually have lurched to the left. And even their own journalists say so. Um, and these days, what that means but is- But that's a um, different thing. Know, that's a different thing from what you, your initial claim was. Well, they do, All they do is, is police people's sexual attitudes, their racial attitudes, well, they do, and, they and, do and engage in pettiness. Look at now, the names now, they call, but now the you're saying that their call. coverage on substance is to the left. That That's something that I could very easily agree well, with. The, the first thing well, is very the, different. You're equating two I things. Don't think the two, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And I think that in, in large part, they're not the mutually project. exclusive, but they're not the same either. No, they're not the same, but they're both true. <laughs> um, and the, you know, the, in large part, the purpose of the political left has become uh, this identity politics-driven social engineering. Think about what's happened to the political left in the West, right? Um, whether it's the Labour Party in England or the Democrat Party here, they've given up on their old constituencies and they've given up on being primarily economic um, uh, arguers. They don't really care too much about, for instance, the white working class. In fact, the Democrat Party is clearly um, actively hostile to the white working class. And instead, they've created this new coalition. And I, I talk about this in the book, too, in, in the first chapter. Um, you know, instead, they've created this new coalition of women, minorities, immigrants, and everyone else who thinks they've been given a raw shake in life, or anyone who could be persuaded that they might have done. And as a result, they have this sort of vested interest, not only electorally if they work in politics, but culturally, socially, um, theoretically, if they're working in, in media or in, or in the academy, of um, talking about this stuff 
all the time. And I don't think you can plausibly claim that millennial media isn't obsessed with identity. So how how is your book not obsessed with identity? It seems to me you've written an entire book that's also obsessed My, with identity. Well, well, of course it is, because I'm commenting on the, you know, the, the identity politics industry. My purpose is to But you're to also commenting on your own identity. I mean, this, this book is very much a profession of who you are and an explanation of who of, you are, right? It's course, a book about your course. identity. No, of course. But my exist—but what I—here's what I had in mind for this book, and here is why I think that um, I'm so effective. And it's that just by living and breathing— um, I, I offer up a refutation of the two things that keep the left in, in cultural power. One of them is political correctness. And I demonstrate through just living that you don't have to be scared of what you say. And, it, you know, you can be outrageous and be provocative and not necessarily have your life destroyed. Or at least that, you know, <laughs> nothing bad happens if you well, turn you, around to the Didn't the, you, by your own contention, you, you lost three jobs in, a, in, a, in, a, in an eye blink because of what you said? I mean, isn't your life uh, no, well, that, the moment? No, I mean, I had... I had a hiccup in my career because I said something I didn't intend. Something tumbled out of my mouth I didn't mean, and I apologized for that. But what, I, I, the, what I'm talking about is people expressing their, their sincere opinions or talking about data or studies or whatever, stepping outside the bounds of political correctness. What I accidentally said um, in that late night live stream wasn't me stepping outside the bounds of political correctness. It was something tumbling out of my mouth that I did not mean and did not intend. So I think that's a different case. Mm -hmm. But the first, so the first thing you know, is, is living and breathing you know, anti-political correctness. And the second is my whole career is an experiment in identity politics and dedicated to the destruction of them by revealing them as ridiculous. Because what I do is I go out and say, look, I am a gay Jew immigrant uh, who exclusively sleeps with African-American men and uh, I'm really, really right wing. And I'm, you know, all of these things are true. All of these things are me. But what I'm doing by making it very public and constantly banging on about it, writing about it and speaking about it is, is showing gay people that they don't have to automatically vote Democrat just because they like the company of other men. I'm showing, you know, I'm trying to demonstrate through my life, using myself as an example, how ridiculous and counterfactual and anti-intellectual ident identity politics are. The idea that because you have a particular skin color or sexuality or, or a particular uh, you know, aspect of yourself about which you, you, you can do nothing, that you should vote in a particular direction and believe a particular set of ideas. I find that to be utterly ridiculous. You're listening to my conversation, recorded a few weeks ago, uh, with right-wing author and personality Milo Yiannopoulos. Coming up, you'll hear more about his failed book deal with Simon & Schuster. As we do with most pre-recorded interviews taped for The Colin McEnroe Show, we edited this interview for content and time. If you want or need to hear the entire interview, including Milo discussing his importance to the conservative movement or Milo's thoughts about Leslie Jones or Black Lives Matter, go to our webpage at wnpr.org slash Colin, or you can even search for it on Breitbart. You probably don't want to do that. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Katie Talarski, and Josh Nalea. Why did it require so many producers? Hmm. The part of Bill Curry was played by Roger Stone. On tomorrow's show, we'll look at the culture of video games and the problem of tech addiction. And now, back to Colin. Welcome back to the second part of my conversation with Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, you may notice, if you know anything about Milo Yiannopoulos, that he sounds shall we say, a little bit more housebroken uh, in this interview, if you know anything about the kind of outrageous rhetoric that he's used in the past. Well, part of that is that he's trying to make a comeback right now. He's no longer at Breitbart. Uh, as you'll hear, he lost his publishing deal with Simon & Schuster. Uh, he's been kicked off Twitter. Um, 
Uh, these things have to do, in the case of Twitter, with uh, his role in a harassment campaign against comedy actress Leslie Jones. Um, he's also lost some speaking engagements and probably the Breitbart position and the advance from Simon & Schuster because of some comments he made on a podcast where he appeared to validate the notion that in some cases, boys, boys in the neighborhood of 13 years old, can have sexual relationships that are effectively consenting and even maybe helpful to them with adults. Um, so you can imagine how that might have cost him some uh, some positions and some speaking engagements. Anyway, uh, Milo here will be talking a little bit more about his publishing deal. It's misreported in the media as self-published. Of course, um, they say that as a sort of, in a sort of demeaning way to try to suggest that you're just, you know, you've got this sort of nasty, cheap, on-demand paperback coming out. Well, no, I've actually invested $3 million in starting my own imprint, Dangerous Books, and we're going to publish a lot of people besides just me. So uh, the first book from Dangerous is my book, Dangerous, and uh, it's selling phenomenally well. What I did do uh, is Simon and Schuster, you know, I got, I got cancelled from CPAC over some the comments that, that, that you mentioned earlier on where I sort of stumbled into saying something I didn't mean about. I was talking about how gay men grow up and sometimes find older role models and there's sometimes a sexual component to that and something tumbled out of my mouth that I didn't quite intend so I apologize for that and and um, and and you know took my licks as it were right uh, but Simon and Schuster seems to seem to have used that as an opportunity to break the contract I had with them pretextually they cla- they you know 24 hours before they dumped my book. They were saying how good the manuscript was, how much they liked it. They were grateful for all the hard work I did. Uh, they were looking forward to marketing it. Um, you done good was the was was the text I got from the editor, and then um, and then twenty four hours later we got a letter from them saying that the manuscript was suddenly abruptly unfit for publication. Well, I think what actually happened was they caved to pressure from the left um, and used the opportunity of, me, of of a little slip up from me to cancel my book deal. But the thing is. The only thing I had lost prior to that was a speaking gig at CPAC, which is a very obscure little political conference for like 23-year-old dorks in bow ties who had invited me to inject a bit of star power into proceedings and then retracted that, um, you know, because they, whatever they like to say, they do still have a bit of a problem with gays and me talking loosely uh, in a way that I perhaps shouldn't have about uh, you know, relationships between between gay men of, of very different ages was too much for, for their evangelical board to bear. And they said, no, we're not having Milo. That didn't do me any harm. But Simon is used to cancelling my book, using it as an excuse to break the contract. Simon is used to publishes Rush Limbaugh. I mean, they're not afraid of publishing conservative voices. No, that's not worthy. They had no idea what was going to come down on them when they when they announced my deal. No Simon & Schuster author has had remotely close to the response from the left that I did. Not the same level of boycotts, not even close, not by an order of magnitude, uh, not even close. But I, why is I, I that? am by far the most, well, because I am by, I'm by I far. I think your the problems are self created. I, I think you cause all this trouble and then you get upset that it causes you trouble. Well, you just, no, you describe them as problems. I don't think they're problems at all. Um, what, I will, what, I, what I will do, however, is make sure that Simon and Schuster understands that they should not sign deals with conservatives and libertarians unless they're prepared to see through on their obligations. And they, they backed out of the deal pretextually, um, and they have to pay for that because that had knock-on effects. What happened when I lost my book deal was there was a sort of implication then that I was somehow unfit to be published by one of the big five publishers, which is clearly untrue from reading the book. Read the book and you will see that it is clearly untrue. Um, you know, hundreds, of, you know, 100,000 people have bought the book already. and I don't even have the latest numbers. I haven't had the latest numbers for, for, for a while because we, we can't print them fast enough. 
Clearly untrue. You think hundreds of thousands of Americans are going to sign? You know, I'm not Richard Spencer. If Richard Spencer re- released a book, he'd sell about 4,000 copies, and it would top out because that's how many white nationalists there are in the world. Um, but my book is selling you know, comfortably, easily, sailing into, into six figures, right? It's very clear that they just didn't want the level of opprobrium and, and, and noise and drama and controversy that I attracted. And why do I attract that? Partly because of what I say, but mostly because I'm really effective and the left is scared of me. They are really, really worried because if gay men can do it, maybe women will be next and then maybe black people will be after that. And suddenly the victimhood-driven identity politics coalition that the Democrat Party has put together over the last 30 years might suddenly come crashing down. And what will they have left then? Because they've given up on the white working class in America. They've given up on the working class in general, to be honest. They've never done anything for the black community despite constantly pandering to them. What will happen then when they don't have gays or women or immigrants or Muslims or blacks or anyone else left? They've given up on the working class. The party will evaporate. So they have, So I am the most effective weapon for people who believe that identity politics is garbage and must end. And I'm the most effective weapon for people who believe that you should be able to say, do, and be whatever you want, which is you know, enshrined in that incredibly controversial thing we know is the First Amendment. Uh, you know, I'm the best and most effective warrior um, for those two things, and that's why the left hates me so much. And that is why they came for Simon & Schuster. I'm the most controversial person ever to get a deal with Simon & Schuster. And that ultimately, I believe, is why Simon & Schuster crumbled. Well, they're not entitled to do that because they signed a deal with me. They should never have offered me a book deal in the first place if they weren't prepared for the heat that was going to come. And I warned them repeatedly. They didn't listen. They were arrogant. And that's okay. But they got it. They got to pay. They got to either stick to the deal or they got to pay up. Because because what happened to me afterwards was, you know, set back my plans. I want to be the right-wing Bill Maher one day. And what Simon & Schuster did could have put me back three years. That could have cost me tens of millions of dollars. So Simon & Schuster has to pay. Oh, I wouldn't want to be the anything Bill Maher. Milo Milo Yiannopoulos, (laughs) it has been fun (laughs) to visit with you. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. The book is dangerous. Thank you so much. Thanks for spending time with me. Okay, that's right-wing provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos. Just a few fact checks here. As of last week, Milo's book, Dangerous, had sold under 30,000 copies, according to the bookseller. In response to Milo's $10 million lawsuit with Simon & Schuster, the publishing company said they, quote, believe that Yiannopoulos' lawsuit is publicity-driven and entirely without merit, unquote. If you want to hear the entire interview with Milo, just visit wnpr.org slash Colin. And thank you for listening to this. Thank you.